Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, February 20th. This is your FT News Briefing. This week, we're focusing on the war in Ukraine. It'll be one year since Moscow launched its full-scale invasion. And today, we'll look at Poland's role in the West's response. And we'll find out who's got the upper hand on the battlefield after 12 months of intense fighting. It's almost like before one of those American football games where both sides are glowering at each other, sort of scrunching against each other at the moment. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. U.S. President Joe Biden heads to Warsaw this week. It's his second trip to Poland in less than a year. That really speaks to how important Poland has become as Western allies forcefully respond to the war. Here's the FT's diplomatic correspondent, Henry Foy. Poland's been the fulcrum, if you like, of both military support for Ukraine. The vast majority of Western weapons that have been supplied to Ukraine have gone through into Poland first, been collected there and then shipped across the Polish border, but also diplomatically. Poland has been the sort of diplomatic heart of the push to make Europe take this more seriously. The, the push to make sure that support for Ukraine is sustained financially, humanitarian and militarily, and also that sanctions pressure continues on Russia. So if, if America, if you like, is the engine of the Western response, Poland is, is really the, the, the voice of it. It's, it's the megaphone uh, making sure that um, NATO and EU partners uh, remain as supportive as possible to Kiev. Henry, the FT just spoke with Poland's President Andrzej Duda, and in his interview, he urged NATO members to provide Ukraine with post-war security guarantees. Uh, why is he asking this? I mean, of course, the wider context of this is that Poland has now, for years and years, well in advance of Russia's war, said Russia is a threat to Eastern European countries. We need more uh, security guarantees. We need more military deployment in Eastern Europe. What Duda's saying in this interview with the FT is that Big countries in NATO, and really he's talking about the UK, the US and France, the nuclear armed members of NATO, need to give Ukraine bilateral security guarantees so that Russia knows, even if Ukraine isn't in NATO or the EU anytime soon, it can't do this again. And what kind of response might he get? Will NATO say, sure, we're going to do this or or no? None of the big Western countries are showing their hand. It's obviously a very, very sensitive issue. Nobody wants to go to war with Russia. There's obviously going to be no security guarantees Uh, offered while this conflict is raging. But it does speak to a much bigger issue, which is what is the European security architecture going to look like when this war ends? What is Ukraine's role in that going to be? And what can the West do to support Ukraine going forward? The question of how we prevent this happening again is really at the heart of the post-war debate. Henry Foy is the FT's European diplomatic correspondent. Thanks, Henry. Thank you very much. Tomorrow, we'll talk more with Henry about how the war has upended Europe's approach to Russia. For now, we'll turn to the FT's Felicia Schwartz for the U.S. response. The U.S. position is they'll support Ukraine as long as it takes. It's become really one of the, if not the primary focus of American foreign policy. It really is an existential threat to the rules-based international order, which sounds like a very wonky term, but is really kind of the rules of the road that the West, led by the U.S., established after World War II. And they see making sure that Russia doesn't you know, get away with invading its neighbor as a pretty important goal to uphold the world as it stands with the the U.S. uh, as kind of the leading power. 
Felicia, it seems like there's this push and pull of U.S. support. You know, Ukraine asks for a certain type of weapon, whether it be a tank or an aircraft. And then the U.S. and other Western countries hesitate, but then they end up sending it. What's your take on this? I guess I would say on the one hand, the battlefield and the conditions on the battlefield and what the Ukrainians need has has changed over time. And I think also another part is that all along, the Americans have been really, you know, conscious of escalation. President Biden made it very clear to his national security team, you know, number one goal of the U.S. is not to get into direct conflict with Russia or for, you know, NATO not to get into direct conflict with Russia. So I think they're kind of constantly calibrating all the time. You know, I did a piece about some of this. And one of the things I heard from the analysts I spoke to is that whether it's by design or by accident, the assistance kind of ratchets up little by little. And it kind of creates like an information environment or a situation where it's not some dramatic escalation. It's like little by little, the U.S. is doing more. And it's not like there's some significant moment where there's some, you know, intense change or system that Russia feels like it has to react to. Felicia Schwartz is the FT's U.S. foreign affairs and defense correspondent. Western military strategists have, for decades, focused on terrorism as the key threat. Now, with Russia and Ukraine, we've got ground battles between two sovereign armies, hearkening back to wars from last century. We've been tracking this land war with the FT's defense and security correspondent, John Paul Rathbone. He's with us again today. Hi, JP. Hi, Mark. So, JP, where are we today? Who has the advantage in the war? Essentially, you've got a stalemate on the front line, which is not to say it's not moving. It sort of moves one way, a few kilometers one day, and then moves a few kilometers back another day, and there's fighting all along. The challenge for either side is how to break this gridlock, essentially. And on the one hand, Russia still got mass. It's called up 300,000 reservists. So they're being thrown into the fight, and it still has an advantage of artillery and armor. And on the other hand, you've got the Ukrainians who have quality instead of quantity. And that's a lot to do with the will to resist by its troops and their level of motivation. And, of course, the Western supplies of ammunition and other weapons. So it's almost like before one of those American football games where where both sides are glowering at each other and they're sort of scrunching against each other at the moment. JP, you've been covering this war since the start over the past year, what would you say is the most surprising development? I think what has taken a lot of people by surprise is the state of the Russian army and the realization that it was a Potemkin army in many senses. It looked great on the outside, fantastic on parades, less good in action. And they've had a lot of trouble in coordinating between the various arms of their army. And it's been much less effective than people thought. That's not to say that you should underestimate the Russian army. It's sort of like this Tyrannosaurus Rex. It may not have a big brain. Again, don't underestimate the Russians in that aspect either. But basically, it's just this huge, gnashing beast, uh, extremely dangerous, and you've got to treat it with extreme caution. So does that mean Russia could win this war at some point? I don't think you can say that Russia will ever win this war. I mean, strategically, it's lost. That's not quite the same, though, as saying that Ukraine has won. But the 
question is, what does the nature of Ukrainian victory come to look like? In some senses, the mere fact that the Kiev administration is still there, the country is still there, it's still fighting, that is a success compared to where we were exactly a year ago, where many people expected Kiev to fall. But between uh, surviving and, and actually winning and pushing the Russians out of the country, that's a big gap. GP, I know you do not have a crystal ball. None of us do. But what's next for the war? What does peace look like is, I think, the question you're asking. And what would make that peace lasting? And if the Russians remain on Ukrainian territory, and let's include the Crimea in that as well, um, you can imagine a frozen conflict akin to the Korean Peninsula. But that doesn't mean hostilities will cease. There'd still be the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. Russia could still lob missiles into Ukraine. So is that a lasting peace? I don't think so. And Ukraine would also continue to want to be pushing the Russians back. What happens if the Russians get pushed back all the way to Ukraine's borders, as established in the United Nations in 1991? That's a clearer line. And Ukraine would sort of reinforce those borders with Western help. And then Russia would be behind those borders, licking its wounds. But when I say that Russia has lost, it's lost strategically in the sense that it hasn't conquered Kyiv. NATO is more united than ever. The West has shown remarkable coherence and cohesion in helping Ukraine. But that's not to say that Ukraine has won. What does victory look like to Ukraine? This is, it's the million-dollar question, and a lot will depend on what happens on the battlefield over this coming year. J.P. Rathbone is the FT's defense and security correspondent. Thank you, J.P. Thank you. Tomorrow on the news briefing, we'll look at Russia's second front. Moscow is growing its military and diplomatic influence in Africa. It wants votes at the UN. It wants resources. It wants to spread its message that it stands up against a Western hegemony, as Putin would put it, that it presents an alternative and is somehow on the side of the former colonized powers, the underdogs of this world. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from rustolium